Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, everybody. It's so good to see you. Thanks for being here. Um, thanks for tuning in, all of you who are joining us online. I'm excited. Uh, you guys got a little rowdy during worship. I like that. You know one of my favorite things? Brooklyn, who is standing right here, the young lady, she's a junior in high school. Man, she's just like, I love her passion. Hey, before we jump into uh, studying the scripture, I want to say thanks for last weekend. It was Easter, and it was just so much fun. We saw 67 people baptized, 89 people made a commitment to follow Jesus, and we got to celebrate Easter with more than 10,000 people. Isn't that really, like, that is so amazing, right? I mean, at least 10,000 people figured out there's more to Easter than the marshmallow chickens, right? There's something behind it. So I love celebrating that. Thanks for inviting people and just greeting people, all that. Fantastic. So we're in the series, we're calling it Threads, and we're taking a whole year to just try to grasp the big picture of the Bible, and it's amazing the continuity of a book that is written over centuries by multiple authors in numerous cultures, that there's these big themes, the meta-narratives of the scripture that help us grasp what it's all about. Now, here's what's going to happen this weekend. We're going to talk about something that doesn't seem to carry that continuity, in fact, we'll find that there seems to be an abrupt difference between what the Old Testament, the books written before Jesus, and the New Testament teach on war and violence. They're like radically different. And this is a reality. So I, over the last, or maybe starting about 20 years ago, I bet that nearly every week of my life, I have a conversation with someone who's exploring the Bible, considering becoming a follower of Jesus, and one of their major hangups, this has come like to the top three major hangups, is the violence and apparent genocide that you find in the Old Testament. It is really challenging and really disturbing. And so we're going to talk about war. And please know, this is just cursory. We're going to like cover a ton of territory. And I, I would invite you to think deeply, read the scriptures deeply in response to this, because we can't cover it all. But let's go ahead and jump in. Let's talk about this ongoing threat of war. We're going to look at the Old Testament. We're going to look at the, some teachings of Jesus and then what Paul says about a war as well. Ready? Jump in. And uh, number one, we're going to talk about this, the ugliness of war, the ugliness of war. If you look at human history, it is bathed in blood. And some people would say, hey, we are advancing and maturing as human beings. But I just want you to look over the past 100 years of human history. We have had two world wars. It has been the bloodiest, most atrocious time on this planet. We definitely have incredible struggles. The pain, we have things happening on the globe right now that are just painful and baffling. And what is happening and why can't we get along? Well, when it comes to the ugliness of war, especially in this context in the Bible, it's called the conquest of Canaan. Okay, even the word conquest. Well, that sounds pretty serious, right? The conquest of Canaan. And there is a great 
deal of violence as the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, they've left 400 years of slavery in Egypt and they have been given this promise that on the other side of the Jordan River, there is a promised land for them. And they, they spent 40 years wandering because they weren't prepared. They were too much like Egyptians. And in 40 years, they've learned to trust God. And when they cross the Jordan River, they come face to face with a group of people known as the Canaanites. So here's the bummer about the promised land. <laughs> they've been anticipating, hoping to have their own homeland after we're about 480 years now of being homeless or slaves. And when they get to the promised land, it's filled with a specific people group. And it's a very unique people group that we're going to explore. So as they come to Canaan, this atrocious war begins. And you will read multiple times, like dozens, where God gives instructions to the people. It begins with Jericho, the first Canaanite city that they engage with. Um, it is a really different type of war. Like you're not going to win these battles with the Canaanites via your military uh, brilliance, but you're going to march around Jericho and you're going to like put your priests in front and you're going to shout praise to God and the walls fall down. Like God's fighting for you. But you read this. This is what God says. I want you to put everybody to the sword who lives in Jericho, all the Canaanites. And we read that and we're like, well, what about the nice people? <laughs> like everybody. And then that would happen time and time again. God uses phrases like this. I want you to utterly destroy them. I want you to um, wipe them from the earth. We read that and we're like, what is going on? Well, war is difficult. War is painful. In fact, this will probably never happen again, but we're going to read a quote from Richard Dawkins who's one of the leading atheists. Um, he's written extensively about his atheism. And one of his major hangups to this book is the conquest of Canaan. This is what he says, and see if this would resonate with any of you. He says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Kind of see where he's coming from, from all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. You have any question where he stands, right? <laughs> a couple of those words I had to look up, right, and practice before I read them out loud. So as Richard Dawkins engages the God of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Joshua, he comes across with this understanding, like what kind of God is this? And let's just be really honest. Many of us read it and there's certain things in the Bible where we're like, I don't know, but I'm just gonna kind of put it to the side. Others of you, I'm, I'm speaking to people who are spiritually unresolved and you're beginning your journey. You read that and you're like, what do I do with this? Where do I go with this? Because there seems to be so much dissonance between the conquest of Canaan and the words that the New Testament speaks about war and violence. Here's a couple things that I think can help us. I can't solve this completely. I think this is a very difficult subject, but I think it's imperative for us to understand the context of what is happening when the people are entering into the land of Canaan. It is occupied by this group of people known as the Canaanites. And there are a minimum of 16 different tribal groups within the Canaanites. And I think you can make a really solid argument 
that the Canaanite culture was one of the bloodiest, most violent, and most repressive cultures that we have ever seen on planet Earth. In fact, God speaks to Moses and he says this, the Canaanite culture hasn't fully made it to the, the, the dismal point of their sin. It'll take four more generations. I'd like to say this. I'd like to say that part of what we read in the Old Testament, particularly in the conquest of Canaan, is God's justice rather than genocide. And let me just look at two scriptures. We're going to look at uh, one from Leviticus, one from Deuteronomy, that tell us just a hint of what is happening in the Canaanite culture and why God said this has to end. This has to end. First passage of scripture is from Leviticus chapter 18. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. And then the rest of Leviticus 18 is all about human sexuality. And like everything that you can imagine that people go to jail for today is listed. He says, this is what is happening in Canaan. And you've got sexual slavery. You've got incest, bestiality, all these things that we don't like to talk about. He says, the land that you're going to is filled with a sexual ethic that is degrading and reprehensible. And it is, it is something that cannot exist. It cannot exist. Then let's move to our next passage of scripture. And there's many that would say the similar thing, but this is from Deuteronomy 12. And after they have been destroyed, speaking of the Canaanites, before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. Let's pause there for just a moment. Um, theologically, we call this syncretism, okay, where you have a group of people who have a God that they worship, their own ethic, and they come into contact with another group of people who have another God and another ethic. And what happens is you can adopt the other group's ethics and even their worship practices. And God is saying this, the land that is promised to you, unfortunately, is filled with a people group who is incredibly violent. And this can't be a part of this new nation that I am creating. God's saying, well, there's a new way to be human. We're gonna establish that in the land of Israel and you cannot adopt their practices. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things. The Lord, notice that word, hates. And he's just gonna mention one of them. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So the 16 tribal groups that make up the Canaanite nation, it was common practice for them to observe human sacrifice. And they did not sacrifice their enemies. Uh, one of their gods was represented by an enormous statue who holds a bronze bowl in his hands. This is disturbing, but we have to understand what was happening. The Canaanites would build a tremendous bonfire underneath the bronze bowl. And in particular, they would throw in their firstborn sons to be burned alive to appease the Canaanite gods. 
This is a culture where infant sacrifice is normative. It's actually required and expected by the Canaanite religious leaders. And when we, when we see the people of Israel coming in, God is saying this. This is the type of culture, the type of oppression, the type of murder that cannot exist. He's been patient. He's given them four generations. And he says, when we come in, we need to break this. Now, one of the challenging things about all these passages is there's a Hebrew word that is used, abab, abab, and we translate it destroy, overthrow. In its classic meaning, it means this, to break the power of. And what God is saying is we need to break the power of this type of culture. This is no way for people to live. This is violent. People need to be protected. And God uses the people of Israel as his form of justice to move into the land and cease the violence. And he says that cannot be a part of this future. Now, there's another thing at work, and please be patient with me. When, when, when I say this, I, please understand, like I have deep reverence for the scriptures. There also seems to be a f- form of hyperbole happening. Because on multiple occasions, let me give you an example. God will say, I want you to destroy people completely. You can find about 12 of these. Uh, Joshua 10, I want you to make sure there's no survivors in a certain city. Joshua 15, the city where there were supposed to be no survivors. He goes, now drive out all the inhabitants. Uh, multiple places he says, I want you to wipe them out. And then a couple chapters later he says, and make sure you don't marry their daughters. So it's not complete genocide. It's this abob word where he's saying, I need to break the power of this culture. Right? Don't do that. So this wipe out, um, decimate, it's in some ways it's hyperbole. So let me give you an example. In uh, the United States of America, I've coached a lot of kids' sports teams. Um, you can come home from a game and grandma asked, how did the game go? And here's, here's the responses. Think about it. We slaughtered them. We murdered them. We wiped the field with them. And grandma's not like, oh, genocide on the soccer field. Right? <laughs> she knows this. She knows that you're saying we utterly destroyed the other team and we were triumphant. Right? There wasn't actually, now it is violent, undeniably. Now there's one other thing that I think is so helpful to remember because uh, some of us are just super merciful and you're thinking, oh, poor Canaanites, right? Now it tempers a little bit when you realize infant sacrifice was normative in their culture, but you're still like, wow, did they even have a chance? They did have a chance. Let me give you two examples. There's a Canaanite woman named Rahab. She lives in the city of Jericho the first Canaanite city that they encounter. Rahab is actually a prostitute, but somehow as a prostitute, she interacts with some of the Hebrew spies and she realizes my culture has to end. What is happening in our cities is not okay. And she helps the spies and she ends up experiencing freedom, her whole family, because she turns from her Canaanite religion and she becomes a part of the Jewish movement and she's actually listed as a ancestor of Jesus. There's one other group. There was one tribal group of the Canaanites known as the Gibeonites, Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were the only Canaanite clan that said this. They said, what we're doing is not okay. 
and they come to the people of Israel and they say, we turn from our cultural norms. We're going to leave all of our deviant sexuality. We're going to leave all the oppression and repression. We're going to leave child sacrifice and make an alliance with you. And God says, absolutely, because you've turned even this group of Canaanites, you can be included in this new promised land. So I get it. Like, it is challenging. Um, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch violent movies but I was allowed to read the Bible, <laughs> which can be equally violent. And it, it wouldn't be an understatement to say that probably somewhere between 92 and 96% of all the violence that we read of during this time is directed specifically towards the Canaanite culture who refused to give up their horrific ways of living. Right, So the ugliness of war, it's there. Now, let's jump ahead because this is where we're going to experience some dissonance. Let's read a little bit about the teachings of Jesus when it comes to war and violence. There's so much we could cover. I'd love for you to do that on your own. But we're just going to look at one passage of scripture where Jesus makes some shocking statements. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, in Latin, anybody who studied law, okay, we call it lex talionis, the law of tallying up or reciprocity. This is what Western culture has based their criminal justice system on. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, lex talionis. So it, it means this. It means that our punishments should equal the crime. So Eric... If I like found you in the atrium after service and I slapped you just for no reason, Eric, according to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, he should be able to slap me back just as hard. Okay. Um, if I stole your car and crashed it, destroyed it, the law would say that you were responsible to repay that in totality. Now, there are some cultures that don't have this, some Middle Eastern cultures like you stole a loaf of bread and they chop off your right hand. That is not lex talionis. That's like an eye for a, all of your internal organs, right? So it's, it's a different principle, but Jesus says, you've heard this. This is how Jewish, Jewish culture worked. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What? How many people like to resist evil people? He goes on, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Oh, that hurt. Let's balance it out. Now hit this side, right? <laughs> this one's going to be red. We might as well. What? And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Oh, you want my shirt? Well, I bought the shirt and coat at the same time, and they go well together. So... We have this phrase, take the shirt, or give, somebody will give you the shirt off their back. This is where it's from. So just, yeah, give, like this life of incredible generosity. Generosity. Somebody wants to steal your shirt, give them your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, culturally, Jesus is talking about something very specific. About 150 years before, the Roman Senate had passed a law that any Roman soldier who's traveling throughout the Roman Empire, and there's, 
hundreds of thousands of Roman soldiers. As they travel from place to place, if you are not a Roman citizen, which about two thirds of the empire weren't citizens, a Roman soldier could take anyone at any time and force them to carry all of their gear as they're moving from one city to another. So it was common practice that you're walking down the road and there's a group of soldiers and the Roman soldiers could say, over here, and you had to put on all of their gear, all of their supplies, and they could force you by law to carry all of their gear one full mile. And what does Jesus say? This is the oppressive regime forcing you to carry their gear. Jesus says, go with them two miles. We have a phrase, it comes directly from this, to go the extra mile. That's what referencing. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And many of us would say, Jesus, don't you understand boundaries, right? <laughs> like, where's the boundary talk, Jesus? This is, this is pretty radical, isn't it? But how do you apply that? And then there's this question. Is that to be applied simply to an individual life or is that to be applied to a state, to a state level? So is this just for me and my interactions with human beings or do we apply this um, at a much grander level? And the church has been all over the map on this, all over the map on this. There are many people who earnestly read the text that we just read and others and they, as a church movement, um, this would be Adventists, Brethren churches, disciples of Christ, Quaker or friends churches, and they are officially theologically conscientious objectors. And this came to the forefront, especially during World War I and II, where there were people who were reading the teachings of Jesus, and they realized Jesus is asking something radical of me, and they said, this applies not just to individual interactions, but this applies to the state. And so they're conscientious objectors. It's a big question, right? Um, our oldest son is in a special military unit. We, like, we've talked through this. What does this mean to be a follower of Jesus in the face of evil? I don't know exactly what that means. But I do know what it means in terms of individuals. I do believe that Jesus is asking for a radical ethic from his followers. He's asking us to do this to put aside lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Because this, this is how human interactions happen. In a marriage, someone says something that is painful to their partner. And what does your instinct tell you to do? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I now will say something that will hurt you at least as much as you just hurt me. This is neighborhood squabbles. This is business dealings. This is family issues where we operate. Here's what your instincts tell you to do. If someone hurts you, you hurt them back and get even. And Jesus says, I am creating a new people group. And I am asking you to not be run by your instincts and the cultural norms. I am asking you to not require an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I am asking you to challenge these things, these norms, and to say, I forgive. I choose not to be offended. I lay down my rights to revenge. 
And when this works its way into a disciple's life, this is how marriages can make it. This is how families stay together. This is how you can be in harmony with your neighborhood. Is Jesus is saying this, if we keep doing what we've always done, the war, the violence, the revenge, the friction, it will never end. It's when the people of Jesus get to the point where they go, that hurt. But I'm not hitting back. Here's my other cheek. I'll give you the shirt off my back. And I will go the extra mile. Now, how you live this out is very, very challenging. I understand that. In a personal application, Jesus is saying, I need you to live in a different way. Now, how does it relate at a state level? That's a whole nother question. Someone who's really helped me with that is one of my heroes by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Hopefully some of you have heard of him. I would highly suggest reading his books. They're transformative, especially The Cost of Discipleship, Life Together, Letters and Papers from Prison. They are amazing. And, and we think of this theoretically, he had to live it out. He's a German pastor. He's living in Germany. He reads the teachings of Jesus and he originally is promoting pacifism. He, he reads that and he goes like, no, no, like we can't get engaged. He watches the Nazi party begin to gain influence and grow in power. And he's starting to wonder like, what do I do with the teachings of Jesus? He understood at a personal level, but what do I do at a state level? And he's so confounded, he actually escapes to the United States of America. He's here teaching at some of our predominant education facilities. And he realizes I have to go back. And he engages at a state level, is involved in multiple plots, and he's eventually hung just before the end of the war by the Nazi party. And he makes a quote, which I think you got to think through this on your own. But this quote is so helpful. He says this. We're not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We're to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. So his ultimate conclusion in this context that he's living in is, I'm not just here to, to treat the people who have been oppressed by injustice. He says, I'm here to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Think through this, understand at a personal level, if you're gonna follow Jesus, I don't get to respond and react and get revenge like I would like to. I get to lay down my right. If you wanna know how this looks, look at the last week of Jesus' life. Where Jesus is accused of crimes that he did not commit. He's going to be crucified for things that he never did. But he's gonna win the greatest battle in human history through service, surrender, sacrifice, and humility. Love wins the battle. That's what it looks like. Now, one more thing that we have to talk about, right? So we've looked at the ugliness of war in the Old Testament. We've looked at these really challenging teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. And then let's move into Paul, where Paul says this. He says, there's an ultimate war. So when we talk about war, we're just talking about all those were human to human interactions. Paul introduces his friends in the city of Ephesus to a brand new idea. And he says, listen, when you think about war, you cannot just think about oppressive regimes. You can't just think about interpersonal conflict. He says, I need you to think about something else. 
So Ephesus is part of the Roman Empire. There's a church there in Ephesus, by the way. There's somewhere between 10 and 20,000 Roman soldiers stationed there all the time. It's one of the biggest cities in the world at the time. And Paul writes to his friends in Ephesus, and he says this about a different type of war, the ultimate war. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God, and they would immediately visualize what? A Roman soldier. Because they saw him in their city every day, the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand. Notice this word stand is going to be repeated over and over. Take your stand against not your neighbor's attitudes. <laughs> against what? He says there's a bigger enemy. The devil's schemes, his trickery. By the way, next week we're talking about the spiritual realm. We'll explore that more. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle isn't against other people. He says, there's a, there's a much bigger war happening, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, I love that it stands repeated because you're involved in a very different war and you have to, you have to be real uh, cognizant of this so that when this war comes, the whole point is this, is you're still standing. You are still standing. So Paul invites the people in Ephesus to remember this. There is a war and in this war, you cannot be a conscientious objector. There is a spiritual war. And he's telling every believer that you have to put on your armor. That you have to take an active stance. That passivity is not an issue because there are certain things that you need to stand in and not be overwhelmed by. And you have a responsibility every day to put on your full armor and realize that I am in a battle, a spiritual battle. It's for the sake of the world. It's for souls. It's for what is right. There is an evil force out there that wants to rob, kill, steal, and destroy. I'll talk about that next week. He says, there is a devil out there who wants to steal people's joy, who wants to keep people in brokenness and addiction. He wants to kill your hope. He wants to overwhelm so that what? So that you're not standing anymore. So that you're laying down in a point of misery. Now, here's, here's the challenge with this text, okay? Um, the United States of America is probably one of the most individualistic cultures that has ever existed. And then if you're in the room and some of us online, you, you're, you're familiar with Montana, which is maybe one of the most individualistic states in the most individualistic nation that's ever existed, where it's like, yeah, be tough. Like, put your boots on, get back on the horse. You can do it. So here's, here's what I do. Here's what I did for years. I read this text, and I think about a gladiator. <laughs> put it on. Me and the sword every day. In reality, that's not what this text is about. So um, in the, probably the mid 80s, there's this character came out and my little brothers watched him. He's called Bible Man. Anybody remember this? VHS tapes and Christian comic books. Okay. Bible Man, 
he was like this real character. And he put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and carried the sword of the spirit. And he had a shield. And he was, he, so he was like the Christian equivalent to Captain America, right? He was just like super tough. And they always have ab muscles, right? It's phenomenal. And, you know, he'd take on evil. He'd take on evil. And when we read this text, this is where we go. It's kind of like, hey, I need to get ready because it's me against the devil. I want you to know that when they read this in, in the city of Ephesus, it's not what they thought. Here's what they thought. They, they knew how the Roman military system worked. So Roman Empire, you can make an argument that they existed for 800 years. That is a really, really long time. Here was their secret. The Greeks ruled the world before them, and the Greeks had this thing called a phalanx, which was several hundred people lined up, really long spears. They marched towards you. It was like a human tank, and the spears separated them from danger. Nobody could defeat it until the Romans came up with the maniple system, maniple system, which was a small unit, changed, sometimes as small as nine, sometimes as big as 30. And these troops lived life together. They had to sleep in proximity, the same tents. They ate all their meals together. They traveled. They were always transferred to a new area together as a unit. And here's how they broke the power of the Greek phalanx. Is this group, maniple, which is a word for fingers, could break off at any moment and surround, come behind the Greek phalanx. The Greek phalanx had no way to protect. It's either sides or the, the, the rear. And so these units would move away. They called this sometimes the tortoise formation. Because what do you see? <laughs> you see Roman soldiers with their breastplates and their shields and their helmets and their swords. And they move as a cohesive unit. And they were just, they couldn't be defeated. What took down the Roman Empire wasn't somebody who figured out how to destroy this. It was internal corruption. And when Paul is writing to his friends in Ephesus, he's saying, I need you as a body of believers. I need you as a small group. I need you as a family, as a community of friends to put on your armor every day because there is still a war to be waged. It's an unseen war. It's a war that you cannot be passive about because there is an enemy out there who's still trying to do what? He's trying to kill and rob and steal and destroy. And he says, every day you've got to realize that you're in a spiritual battle, that there are dark forces that want to overtake this world. You need to put on your gear. And then what do you do? You stand right next to the people that you live life with. And you protect and you move towards the Canaanites in the land. The forces that say life is not valuable. You move towards the forces that say sexual oppression is okay. You move towards hunger. You move towards emptiness. And you say there is a battle to be won and there's some. My enemy is not that person. My enemy is the mentality, the reality, the devil himself who stands behind regimes and systems and cultural ethics that degrade and dehumanize human beings. And he calls the church not to, not to like fill every vacant system of government, but to be on a war, a spiritual war against everything that is broken in this world. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the ultimate war. So we've covered ugliness of war in the Old Testament, the radical teachings of Jesus regarding 
nonviolence, personal forgiveness, non-retaliation. And this picture that we can't escape, that there is a spiritual war that is happening, and you and I need to play a part. I cannot be a conscientious objector when it comes to that war. That I am engaged. My general is Jesus, and I'm fighting for what he values. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.